Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word once again. Um, by your grace, you have preserved our lives so that we can come here this morning. Um, and we can open your word and we can see what you have to say to us there. And so, Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to work in us, work in our minds and work in our hearts so that we would understand what it is that you have to say to us in your word and that you would apply it to our lives. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as usual, we're continuing in our series in the book of Titus. So go ahead and turn there. This is Titus. This morning we're in Titus chapter 1. And we're starting at verse 10 and working our way to the end of the chapter. So that's verses 10 through 16 of Titus chapter 1. And you may remember from last week that um, we were dealing with the subject of the qualifications for elders. And uh, we saw that there were, I mean, there were really two major qualifications for an elder, like two big picture categories that we saw, right? And so you have the first category, which is the one that Paul actually spent the majority of the time talking about, which is character qualities, and we saw there was you know, quite a list of character traits that Paul was putting out there. And then we also saw that the second category for qualifications for elders was the category of teaching. And what Paul's doing there is he's not trying to say that every single elder needs to be a profound and professionally gifted teacher. But what he's saying is that all elders need to have a good understanding of the doctrines taught in Scripture, and they need to be able to rebuke error and promote the truth. Okay? So that's what we were looking at last week, sort of those big picture categories for the elder, and some of those qualifications. And what's interesting about the way that Paul has this first chapter of Titus structured is that he is moving now from talking about elders to today he's going to talk about false teachers. And he's doing that for very specific reasons. And one of the reasons we've already talked about in previous weeks and that reason is because Paul here is writing at the very end of his ministry, and he's getting the church ready to operate without the apostles. Because as the apostles are dying off, now we're going to have a shift of church authority. Now we're going to have elders that are going to be now the only ruling offices in the church going forward. And so Paul is now wanting to carefully express and explain how the church needs to function now that the elder, or excuse me, now that the apostles are going to be uh, being removed from the scene. So that's kind of Paul's big picture reason for why he's focusing on elders here. But there's a second reason, and it's a more immediate reason, and that reason is because of the presence of false teachers. Because what we actually are going to see here when I read the passage in just a second is that in verses 10 and following, we have essentially a description of anti-elders. That's really what's going on here, is we have the good elders, that is the people that, that the Christians are supposed to be listening to, that the congregation is supposed to be submitting to. And then in verses 10 and following, we have the bad people. These are the bad leaders, the anti-elders, the false teachers. And so Paul is not only wanting to tell us about false teachers here, but Keep in mind that the reason he's doing that is to uphold the importance of the elders that he's been describing earlier in the chapter. So we're going to try to connect a few of those things as we work our way through this passage. But let me read for us uh, Titus 1, verses 10 through 16. This is our text this morning. 
So starting with verse 10. For there are many who are disobedient, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whom it is necessary to stop the mouths of, who are overturning entire households by teaching those things which are not necessary on account of shameful gain. One of their own, a prophet, has said, Cretans always lie, wicked beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, and on account of this, rebuke them sharply, so that they may be sound in the faith, not holding fast to Jewish myths or commandments of men who turn away from the truth. All things are pure to the pure, but to the impure and the unfaithful, nothing is pure, because they defile their own mind and their conscience. They claim to know God, but by their works they deny Him. Abominable are they, and disobedient, and worthless for every good work. This is quite a sharp description of these people, right? Paul is using some pretty strong language here. And he's doing it for a good reason. Because, as we know, false teachers are a huge problem in all ages of the church. But you can imagine they are especially problematic during the first century of the church when things are just getting going. When the apostles are trying to establish the teaching of Christ, right? they're proclaiming the revelation of Christ and the message of the gospel and all of this. It's one thing to do that today when we have 2,000 years of history to look back on. But it's a whole other thing when you're doing it right there in the first century when they don't have 2,000 years of church history to fall back on. So false teachers are an ever-present problem in the church. And what Paul is doing here in this passage is he's really doing two basic things. Okay? What he's doing first is he's going to describe the false teachers. And then secondly, he condemns them. So you have a description and a condemnation of the false teachers. And I want to spend a pretty significant amount of time here looking at the description that he's giving here first. Because in verse 10, he gives us three things that he uses, three characteristics to describe these false teachers. And each of them is really important. So I want to look at them one by one here. Firstly, you see, he says in verse 10, for there are many who are disobedient. And you notice that's the first thing that Paul says about these false teachers. He's not, first of all, going to characterize what they're saying. Here he's characterizing what they're doing. And this is really important because one of the things that we see throughout Scripture, not just in Paul, but we saw this in 2 Peter when I was preaching through that book. We saw this in Jude when I preached through that book an eternity ago. We saw this in other books, uh, Hebrews, for example, that one of the ways that the Bible characterizes false teachers is it characterizes them with sinful lifestyles. And that's not an ad hominem logical fallacy. I don't know if you've ever heard of that logical fallacy before, but there's a fallacy in logic where you attack a person rather than their argument. And so something like that might be, that person is wrong not because their argument is bad, but because they're living a certain way. And that's considered a logical fallacy because when you're critiquing someone's argument, you don't critique their behavior. You have to critique the argument. Right? You don't challenge the man. You challenge the doctrine. And Paul's not here trying to commit a logical fallacy. 
Okay, but what he's doing is he's trying to say, look, one of the great motivating factors for false teaching is the ability to live a sinful lifestyle. Right? And I mean, we know this, and we can see this in the world, right? People want to believe certain things, not because those things are true, but because it allows them to live in a particular way that they already want to. That's one of the great motivating factors of false teaching. Because if you think about it, false teachers don't have a lot to gain if they're not promoting the truth. Right? They're not after what's actually true. What they're after is something that they can get. And one of the things that they can get is they can get to live the way they want. That's one of the great benefits of not believing in the truth. I mean, it's seeming benefit. Right? is that you can live the way that you want. You don't have to live the way that God says. And so that's, it's just interesting to me that that's the first thing Paul brings up here, is these false teachers are disobedient. And Peter shares this same concern. If you go to 2 Peter and you read, I think it's the second chapter, that entire chapter is a giant taxonomy of all of the sins that the false teachers are, are doing. And Peter's like, look at these people. Look at the way they're living. Do you honestly think that they're speaking the truth? Do you really think that you can trust what these guys are saying? Just look at them. And you can see that that is, this is exactly the antithesis of the description of the elder. Just a few verses before, isn't that right? The elder here, we're told in, let's see, which verse is it? Verse 6. The elder is supposed to be blameless. That is, when people look at the elder, they're supposed to see a model Christian. Not that, you know, sinless, not sinlessness, but a model Christian. Someone where if, if you were to say, you know what, I believe what that guy says because look at the way that he lives. He, he lives the gospel. He lives the way that God says. There must be spiritual wisdom there. So you can see this is exactly the opposite of the elder that we have here. That's why I call this the anti-elder. So that's the first thing. Disobedience. Secondly, he says, they're not just disobedient, but they are empty talkers. Empty talkers. Or if some translations say something like, they're babblers. They just go on talking. And so Paul now shifts from their behavior as disobedient people to now he's talking about their speech. And not just speech in general, but here he's talking about some kind of a teaching function. These false teachers are not just interested in living a certain way, but they actually want to communicate their false doctrines to the church that Titus is in. They're idle talkers. They're teaching garbage, essentially. So these false teachers are doing bad stuff, and they're saying bad stuff. And this is one of the reasons why commentators will suggest here that these false teachers, they are not just people out there. They're not people outside of the church. These false teachers have infiltrated this congregation. They're within the church. They're behaving poorly. They're behaving unbiblically. And they're teaching poorly and unbiblically. And this is another really important aspect that we need to grasp as God's people and recognize that the greatest dangers that we face are not the dangers out there. It's easy to say that the false teachers are atheists, right? Or to to say that atheists are false teachers and to apply what the Bible says about false teachers to the atheists out there. 
And certainly, atheists are teaching false things. When they teach that God doesn't exist, they're wrong. That's totally against the scriptures. We know that. And it's easy to apply this false teaching doctrine to pagan philosophers or to false religions. And to be sure, all of those things, atheists, false religions, pagan philosophies, all these things, they are a threat to the church. They are a threat to our understanding of the things of God, for sure, 100%. But when the scripture is talking about false teachers, you notice most of the time these false teachers are set within the context, not of the broader world, but they're set within the context of the church. And that is the greatest danger humanly speaking, that we have to the gospel and to our understanding of the things of God and to the purity of the doctrine of the church. It's people within its own walls teaching those things which they ought not to be teaching on account of unjust gain. You notice in history, if you were to do a history survey, you look at the fall of churches and the fall of denominations and the fall of schools and seminaries, and fill in whatever other organization. They don't fall because of pagan philosophy on the outside. There's always pagan something or other everywhere. But the reason they fall is because people sneak inside, and they corrupt it from within. The reason why denominations fall is when people cross their fingers when signing the statement of faith. Or they cross their fingers when they're saying, I believe in that confession, I believe in that doctrine, but then they redefine it in their mind and pretend like they don't. That's the problem. And we have to be on guard about those things here. That's the kind of false teachers that Paul's talking about. These guys are disobedient in their lives, and they're teaching false things. Now, he also says here, uh, later on in verse 14, he identifies actually more specifically what these guys are teaching. And so it's worth just stopping for a second and focusing on that. He says in verse 14 that these people were teaching Jewish myths and commandments of men. And that phrase, Jewish myths, that's kind of interesting. Um, this again shows that these, these uh, false teachers are probably very closely associated with Judaism in some way. Especially since Paul in verse 10 says that these false teachers are disobedient, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So there he's talking about these kind of false teachers that have some connection with Judaism. And so these false teachers are in their idle talking promoting Jewish myths. And these, I mean, it could be on any number of things that he's talking about here. We don't know for sure. It could be maybe fictitious stories that somehow relate to the Old Testament. Maybe these are some of those extra-biblical works that were being promoted during uh, the days of Jesus and Paul. Uh, they're called the pseudopigrapha, and I have all of those on my shelf back at, at, our, at our house. We've got uh, two giant volumes that would take about this much space on the shelf, and they're just lots and lots of different Jewish writings that were kind of floating around during Jesus' time. And so maybe Paul's talking about those. Yes? The pseudopigrapha. Okay. Uh, don't try to spell it. <laughs> it doesn't sound, or doesn't look like it sounds. That's right. You can do pseudopigrapha. Maybe you'll get close to it. Yep. Yeah, so it's, it's a lot of different works. Um, one of them is called The Testament of Moses and claims to have been written by Moses and then records some things that Moses supposedly did and said. Uh, maybe those are some of the Jewish myths that Paul's talking about here. 
We don't know for sure. But what he is concerned about in Titus here is he's trying to say, guys, these guys are promoting things that just don't matter. Right? These, these sort of accounts, maybe they happened, maybe they didn't. But these false teachers are focusing on things that are not important. Don't be focusing on that. You need to be focusing on the scriptures. You need to be focusing on the things that matter, not on this other stuff over here that just isn't that helpful. That's what Paul's talking about. And so these idle talkers are promoting those things. And they're also promoting here commandments of men. That's the other phrase in verse 14. And that phrase might ring some bells in your mind if you're familiar with the Gospels. Because Jesus talks about commandments of men a lot, not in a good way. He gets after the Pharisees for promoting commandments of men rather than commandments of God. And the idea that Jesus is putting forth there is he's saying, Pharisees, what you guys are doing is you are adding things to the law of God. You're trying to bind the conscience of the people of God to things that are not in the scriptures. And you need to knock it off. That's what Jesus was saying. And Paul here is probably bringing up that same thing. That these people here are promoting, these false teachers are promoting some kind of extra regulations upon Christians. Perhaps even extra regulations that are required not just for the Christian life, but are that actually are required for salvation itself. And what's interesting is that in 1 Timothy, Paul actually elaborates on some of these these things. In 1 Timothy 4, he identifies what some of these commandments are. And he says that they are the forbidding of marriage and the abstaining from certain foods. And maybe there was more than that, but those are two things that Paul highlights. So these false teachers are saying, if you're a Christian, you can't be married. Get rid of marriage. We don't need that. Marriage is is something that we don't need. And also, they were saying, you can't eat certain foods. No eating pork. They're trying to maintain some of the regulations of the ceremonial law. And Paul is saying, this is what these people are doing. They're idle talkers. They're giving you all of these commands. They're trying to create new laws or preserve old ones that have been abolished by Christ. Okay, So that's what's going on here with these idle talkers. So they're teaching a lot of bad stuff. And we'll talk more about the implications of that in just a second. But so these, these false teachers are disobedient. They're idle talkers. And then thirdly, he gives a third description here in verse 10. And that is that they are deceivers. They're deceivers. Some false teachers are deceivers unknowingly. Because they, are, they genuinely believe in the, the false doctrines that they're promoting. But not all false teachers do it unknowingly. Many of them do it they're full well they know what they're doing. They're spreading the false teaching for some reason that is beneficial to themselves. And those are the kind of false teachers that Paul is talking about here. Because in verse 11 he says that they are overturning whole households by teaching those things which are not necessary on account of shameful gain. And there Paul gives his conclusion about what these false teachers are doing for why they're doing it. They're doing it because they get some kind of gain for themselves. Whether it's a financial gain, or maybe it's power, or prestige, or authority, 
Whatever kind of gain, this is why they're doing it. And again, like we said, this is another important motivating cause for false teaching. Not only will people embrace false teaching so that they can live the way that they want to, but they will also embrace false teaching on another's hands because they want to gain something. They want to use people to accumulate wealth for themselves. They want to use people to get power for themselves. They want to hold church office so that they can have power and authority and respect. That's the kind of people Paul's talking about here. It's a scary kind of thing. Because now we're not talking about people who are promoting false teaching because they genuinely believe in something false. These people know it's false. And they're using it to their advantage. These are a scary kind of people. So that's Paul's description. That's what he says they're doing. And you can see here just briefly the result of the kind of things that are happening in verse 11. Their teaching is overturning whole households. Which makes perfect sense if you understand that one of the things they're commanding is that people stop being married. If you're telling people that marriage is bad, you can imagine the kind of effect that would have on households. Right? Marriage is ending, kids being separated from their parents, all kinds of things going on. This is not just a doctrinal overturning. This is a literal overturning of households, destroying of the family. So these are bad dudes. So there's your description. But now Paul is going to give a condemnation, and this is in verses 12 and following. And here's Paul's assessment of these people. Here's what he says, and he actually quotes from one of their own prophets. Um, We don't know exactly who this was, but there's some guesses. But nonetheless, in verse 12, here's the quote that Paul gives. Cretans, because we're talking about people who are in Crete right now. Titus is ministering in a church in Crete. So Paul says, Cretans always lie. They are wicked beasts and lazy gluttons. This testimony is truthful. Wow. Wow. Talk about a sharp rebuke by Paul. Now, is Paul being unfair here? Is he being racist against the Cretans? Being overgeneralistic there? Well, you can be the judge of that, but here's a couple of things to keep in mind. The Cretans were known in this period for being exceedingly wicked. Exceedingly wicked. You can really only compare them to places like Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. There is a word in the Greek language, kretizo. And you can hear Crete in there, right? Kretizo. And that word comes from the activities of the Cretans. And the word kretizo means to play the Cretan or to deceive or lie. So they had a whole verb named after them in the Greek language. That's how bad the Cretans were. There's one ancient historian that says about the Cretans, so much in fact, So shameful love of gain and lust for wealth prevail among them that the Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. That's the unbiased ancient historian making that statement. Here's Cicero. Maybe you've heard of Cicero. He says this. Moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. I don't think Paul's statement is out of line. 
Right? He's just agreeing with what everybody in that day understood about how evil the Cretan people are. Right? So it's not surprising at all that these false teachers are trying to come up with a theology that allows them to fit within the secular culture. Because that's what's happening. Again, the false teachers want to live lives of sin. They want to be like everybody else. And so they are coming up with a theology in order to allow them to do that. And Paul here now is really going to go after them in verse 15. This is the last point that I want to dwell on here as we sort of bring this, bring this home. Paul says in verse 15, he says, All things are pure to the pure, but to the impure and to the unbelieving, nothing is pure because they have defiled their mind and their conscience. Now here he's talking about the doctrines that these false teachers are prescribing. Because the false teachers are saying, on the one hand, we can live disobedient, licentious lifestyles over here. We can be like the Cretans. This is awesome. Oh, by the way, you are not allowed to eat pork and you can't be married. Like, Do you see the complete disconnect there that Paul's pointing out? He's saying, look, you, on the other hand over here, the Cretans are absolute sinners. They're just... These false teachers are trying to allow people to live like that. And then over here, they're trying to promote Jewish ceremonial food laws. It's just a complete radical disconnect. And what Paul's doing here in verse 15 is he is saying, guys, listen, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. You've got it completely backwards. You are not pure by doing certain things. Paul says to those who are Impure and unfaithful, nothing is pure because your mind and your conscience is already defiled. So, the false teachers, aside from just wanting to live sinful lifestyles, what they're trying to say is they're trying to say, Christians, if you want to be pure before God, there are these certain little, little commands that you need to follow food laws and so on. And you need to do those things, and then that will make you pure. So in other words, you're impure if you don't do these things, and then once you do them, you become pure. And Paul says, hold on a second, now you completely misunderstood the law. That's not how this works. Paul says, if you're impure, then everything that you do is impure. If you are under the law, then any time you try to fulfill any demand of the law, you will fail. Why? Romans chapter 3. Paul quoting Psalm 14 says, No one does good, not even one. And he's speaking there very specifically about unbelievers. What he's saying is that if you are not in Christ, if you do not have the purifying, sanctifying work of the Spirit in you, then you cannot do a single good work. This is precisely what the Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 16. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you can't do a good work. It's impossible. This is, well, this is what Paul's pointing out here. He's saying, to the impure and the unbelieving, you can't do anything good. Because your conscience and your mind are both defiled. So everything that proceeds from them will also be defiled. This is the utter futility of salvation by works. 
People who say you can be justified by works do not understand how works actually work. They're saying you can be impure and you do some works and then you become pure. Paul says, no, that's not how it works. You can't do a single good work unless you're already saved, unless the Spirit is already in you. To the pure, all things are pure. Only pure people can do pure works. Only, and that is to say, only sanctified people in the Holy Spirit can do sanctified works to the glory of God. And so you can see here that Paul, in a very careful and subtle critiquing way, is highlighting the gospel of Christ. Because he's saying, these false teachers completely missed the entire point. You can't do works to become pure. Rather, you need purity first before you can do any works. And he's going to tell us, in chapter 3 especially, that that purity, that washing work that makes us able to do what God calls us to do is going to come through the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. And it's there that Paul is going to highlight for us the truth of the gospel. It is Jesus that makes us pure. It is his works that make us pure, not ours. And that's where the false teachers got everything completely wrong. Praise God for that. Not that they got it wrong, but praise God that we have it right by his grace. That he has worked in us to show us from the scriptures the truth. We are pure by the work of Christ, not by our works. Praise God for that. Let me close us in a brief word of prayer. Lord God, we rejoice today that all things are pure to the pure. Lord, you, through the work that you accomplished and through the outpouring of the Spirit, have made us pure, not in and of ourselves, but in you. And, oh God, we thank you that you have worked this great work in us so that we can work to your glory. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work this truth deeply within us and that we would celebrate today as we enter your house to worship, as we enter your sanctuary to sing praises to you and to hear your word. Lord, we pray that you would guard us, guard us ever so carefully from false teaching. Lord, help us to be so drawn to your word that we would know your word well enough to spot this false teaching that emerges both from outside the church and from within the church. Lord, give us sharp minds and give us hearts that love you. Pray that we would respond well and to your glory and worship this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.